Today's scripture reading will be out of Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19, or 18, excuse me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or the one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. One more passage. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read verses 1 through 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, <clears throat> with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. This is the reading of the Word of God. God. Now we, um, we are, as we said, we're going to have an announcement next week about officers. We're going to hopefully get officer training underway, but we are a mission work. We call ourselves Good Shepherd OPC, but we are a mission work of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and the goal is to become a particular church. We are right now supported by our denomination, and there's a, a committee called the Committee of Home Missions and Church Extension. We, we say it, we say Kim Key, not Chi. <laughs> if you want to, you know, when you say Porsche, you're supposed to say what? Porsche. And so this is Kim Key, not Kim Chi. But this is a, our, uh, our home missions that takes care of us. They support us. Our presbytery is taking care of us. They are helping us to get our feet underneath us here, uh, helping us to become a, hopefully one day a self-supporting church. And part of becoming a particular church is the development of and establishment of officers in our church. Now, right now, you have officers. You have an organizing pastor. Uh, that's me. And I'm technically called the organizing pastor or an evangelist. And then we have a provisional session. And that provisional session's been appointed to you by the Presbytery. And so, Pastor Sumter is part of that provisional session, our regional home missionary. And then we have another member. Phil Hodson, he's the pastor of Christ the King OPC in Longview. And then Mr. Larson, sitting over here to my left and to your right, he is one of the provisional session members as well. And by the way, I think everybody in here knows that this church 
or this Bible study, if you will, that's become a mission work, had its start in Steve and Betty Jean's home. And the goal, hopefully, again, is to plant a church in southwest Houston. Our goal is to have our own officers. Ultimately, one day, you'll have to choose your own pastor. You'll have to choose your own elders. You'll have to choose your own deacons. That's what these sermons about are about, moving towards particularization. Now, in all these sermons that I'm going to bring to you, there's five. I, I think I'll be preaching five sermons on the offices in the church. But we're always going to preach Christ. You don't ever have to worry about that. God forbid it that I don't get that out, the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to you. We want to make sure that the person who builds the church is always in the front of every sermon and in every time we speak and pray. Jesus is the cornerstone of this church. And He builds the church. He's the cornerstone. And then on top of Jesus are the prophets and the apostles. And then on top of the prophets and the apostles are you and me. We are these stones that He takes out of this quarry. You know, there's a, there's a must be, I don't know what kind of quarry it is, but it's down the street from me. And these gigantor trucks are coming out of this thing with mega loads of dirt. And I guess it's down there by Oyster Creek. And they're just pulling dirt out of there all the time. It's got to be some kind of quarry. But you and I, we're, we're stones taken out of the world and we're being shaped by Jesus Christ. And we're being placed on top of these apostles and the prophets. Of course, Jesus being underneath it all. He is the head of our church. He is the chief cornerstone underneath it all. Now, as we study Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, we're going to see that Christ has given gifts to the church. And so we're going to be looking at prophets and apostles. As we think about prophets and apostles, those are extraordinary offices that have passed off the scene. And then we're going to look at the evangelist and pastor teachers. These are the ordinary offices that preach what the prophets and the apostles have written, found in the scriptures. And as an evangelist here in this church, there's three things I'm supposed to be doing. The first one, I am supposed to be out there finding lost people. And so we go out and we try to do that on a regular basis. Finding also starving Christians who aren't hearing the Word of God, we want to feed them. And also seeking to build up those who come and make them mature believers. Paul would say, until Christ is formed in you. So, just to make a note here, the evangelist on the field is a person who's seeking to form a core group of people. That's what's going on here. We're seeking to form a core group of people. When you're, when you're the pastor teacher in California, you have a church that's self-sustaining. Now, these same, the pastor teacher does the same things, but this man on the field, my whole goal is to form this core group and get this church to become a particular church. And so part of that will be to have the formation and the uh, establishment of elders and deacons. So as we study these things, one of the things we have to do is we have to know what we're looking for. What are we looking for as we elect a deacon? What are we looking for as we elect an elder? And we have to study and find out what to look for. If you go to Acts chapter 6, you'll see that the people looked for men who were filled with spirit, men who were filled with wisdom, men who were filled with knowledge. 
And so these are the these are we will study some of these passages to try to figure out what we're supposed to look for as a church as we go about this business. Now, one of the things that's interesting as we move into this passage in chapter four of Ephesians, what is the goal of the church? And Paul tells us the goal of the church is church unity. <laughs> so before, actually, we look into who we're going to choose, we have to think about who we are. We have to be a certain kind of people so that we're ready to choose the right kind of folks to be our leaders. We have to be a, a unified people. Now, it's very interesting. What kind of people do we need to be? Not a whole bunch of robots, one man said, doing the same thing. Not a whole bunch of people barely held together by a thread. But we need to be the kind of people we've been studying on the third Sunday, every third Sunday for so many months now. Remember what we've been talking about? We've been talking about the apostles' doctrine. We've been talking about the fellowship. We've been talking about the, the sacraments and the prayers. We need to be a people who are unified around those things. Remember, we studied now, and, and Lord knows I'm going to go back to Philippians. But what are the two things we studied in Philippians? You have to be people who are shoulder to shoulder facing the world, and you have to be a people who can sit and look at each other and drink a cup of coffee. <laughs> that's real simple, isn't it? That's simple, but that's right. That's unity. And so this, this whole sermon is about what kind of people are, where to, are we to be so that we can make the right choices when we see the guys we're supposed to choose. So let's look at the context of church unity, the character of church unity, and the confession of church unity. The context of church unity. Because of man's fall into sin, alienation exists between every man and God. Every man and every man. And even on the inside of us, have you ever noticed that you're just at odds with yourself sometimes? Why is that? That's because of the fall. And we see this alienation and this enmity and separation. It's in every part of our lives. Let me tell you what. It's in every elevator and it's on every subway. What are you talking about? Well, let me tell you what I'm talking about. You walk into the elevator, and you look down, or you look straight ahead, and you don't look at anybody's eyes, and you don't make any contact, and you act like everybody else is not even there. That's alien. That's a problem. That's a real problem. <laughs> when you go to the subway, you know what they tell you? We went to New York City, and you know what they say? You hold on to the pole, and you have your head set in, and you look down, and you look straight ahead, but you don't ever make eye contact. That's a problem. That's a real problem. Now, maybe it's the right thing to do. I don't know. But that's a problem. People need companionship. People need to talk. Just go with Kyle and myself on Thursday. We go out, and we're out there knocking on doors, and people are doing this to us, and people are saying, waving us off, and some people listen, some people take it. And then one person will come out every now and then. A person will come out and talk to us for 25 minutes. Don't know us from Adam. Why are they doing that? Because they're alone. Because they need fellowship. I read this and I, I knew I would use this someday, so I wrote it down. <laughs> there's, a, there's a guy, he, he said that he would go every week to get his hair cut because he knew the barber would touch him on the head and knew the barber would speak to him every week. He needed somebody to fellowship and talk to him. At the fall, this is where alienation came into being. And at Babel, remember we talked about Babel? The man wouldn't go out and be fruitful and multiply and go out and exercise uh, dominion over the whole earth. He's going to stay in one spot. 
He's going to build a tower for, for himself, not for God. And God comes down in judgment, and all of a sudden, now there's more confusion. There's more languages. There's all this separation going on. But when we come to the day of Pentecost, there's preaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead. Jesus Christ is the way back to God. And here's the final seed of Abraham. And all this confusion and all this alienation is going to bring in. Everything's being brought back together through one message, through one language. And that language is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so all these folks, they start from Jerusalem, they go to Judea, they go out to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, and all these folks are being brought back together to speak one language, and that's the gospel. And one of the things that we did when we went to New Zealand, we go over to New Zealand, beautiful place, unbelievably beautiful, they drive on the wrong side of the road, they speak a different kind of English than we do, but when we went into the building, you know what was the same? They sing all the same songs, they read from the same Bible, they, sing the, they do all the same things we do, they have benedictions, they have salutations, it's all the same language. There's a whole bunch of people all over the world right now speaking this language. And if we had an interpreter, they would all tell us the same, they would say that they believe the same thing we do. And it says here that Jesus isn't just building an individual persons, but he's building a society, and that society is called the church. Look at verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Therefore, what's going on there? You know, I'm not going to preach a long sermon on my therefore right now, I promise. But what's it there for? Well, chapter 1, 2, and 3 is all about doctrine, and chapters 4, 5, and 6 is all about application. We're moving from, what, gentlemen, gentlemen, the what, the indicative mood, to the imperative mood, right, right guys? <laughs> this is our Bible study. Sorry, this, I see all my, my guys, they're laughing, they're having fun. Indicatives, what's true, what's doctrinal, we're moving into what life looks like. If this, these things in chapters 1, 2, and 3 are true, then go live like this, go prove that these things are true in your life by walking in a worthy manner according to this call that you have. We looked at Philippians 1.27 where we said only, Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go out, if you say to me, I've been called by Jesus Christ. All right, prove it to me. That's what he's saying. Let's go prove it. Let's go prove it. You know, in mathematics, there's equations. And I don't remember too much about math, but you know what? On this side of the equation, if you multiply all of it by three, you have to do what on the other side? You have to multiply by three. You've got to treat both sides the same. And if this is true, if I'm saying that I have been redeemed by God the Father planning it, Jesus Christ accomplishing it, the Holy Spirit applying it, if all this is true, if I'm seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus right now, then I've got to go act like it. I've got to go live like it. That's what we're saying. You and I, we see in uh, Ephesians 1 at 13, he says that we've heard the gospel. You're called. What does that calling mean? It's not just one of those calls. Hey, Thomas. <laughs> There's Thomas back there. Hey, Tom, got, I got his attention. Hey. It's not just that. It's something that goes beyond that. It's something where the Holy Spirit takes the preaching of the gospel and works it into our hearts and makes it real in our hearts. And all of a sudden we see that our guilt is removed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have new hearts and we have new lives and we're willing to embrace this Jesus Christ 
that before we were not willing. In there a verse that says, made willing in the day of his power. God does that. And we sing, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus, his child, and forever I am. And so this fragmented and isolated and disconnected life all of a sudden is replaced by reconciliation with God. We're at peace with God and we're pursuing peace with all men. You and I, we're to do this according to our calling. Now, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. And Polycarp was a pupil of the Apostle John, and he was faithful to death. He balanced the equation off. He demonstrated that he knew chapters 1, 2, and 3 by all the way to his death by obeying Jesus Christ. He was asked to say, Caesar is Lord. You know, today you're being asked a lot of things. You're being asked to say, men can be women. You're being asked to say all kinds of crazy stuff. Or do not bow down to the narrative of the day. The narrative of this day was Caesar is Lord. This man said, no, he's not. He refused to renounce Christ. And the proconsul came to him again. He's taking him to the stadium where, where all sorts of things happen with you know lions and tigers and bears and all those sorts of things. He says, swear and I will set you free reproached Jesus Christ. And Polycarp said, 86 years have I served him, and Jesus has never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul again said, to blaspheme Christ. He says, since you are vainly urgent that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. I'm balancing the equation. I'm a Christian. A little later, the proconsul said, I have wild beasts at hand. Polycarp, to these I will cast you, except you repent. I will cause you to be consumed by fire. Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. And they kindled a fire and they burned him to death. But the point is this. He lived according to his calling. And the question I'm going to ask you and I ask myself, will I balance the equation? Will I do the doctrine? Will I do what I've been, what I've been taught? And so let's look at the character of, Christ, of church unity. There's seven character qualities, and they're all, man, they're just like, you know, they're just like uh, oatmeal, man. They're just smashed. They're all spunked together. Listen to me read these, verse 2. They're all in tandem. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing toleration for one another in love. There's three in a row in one little phrase. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. These are the character qualities of church unity. And by the way, the Spirit of God has to work these things out in us. We're going to see that in a minute. But humility. This is a word that means the lowliest of persons in society. It's a word that speaks of somebody crouching low in submission. Today we think about 
a man or a woman on the side of the road with a sign and saying they have family members and they, they need help versus maybe a self-sufficient man or a woman. You know, I had a very self-sufficient man who ran the gym that I used to work for. He was 30. I used to train him. It's always, always a favorite story of mine. But see, there's one thing I don't think I've told you so far. He had, he had five cars. I think he had two trucks, three cars, and two homes, and he was 30. <laughs> I think he had 100 pairs of shoes. They used to call him a, a shoe hound. You could go in, he's had 100 pairs of shoes. He had everything. What was said about Ernest Hemingway by his mistress, this is what she said. You're the most complete man I've ever known. You're a writer, a hunter, and you're in need of nothing. The apostle's not taking his cues from Rome. The apostle's not taking his cues from gym culture. The apostle's not taking his cues from American culture, but the apostle's taking his cues from Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus, he says of himself, I'm humble and gentle in my heart. So you and I, we need, if we're going to be those who want church unity, we're going to have to be humble. If you're a CEO, if you're a CAO, if y'all know the difference, if you're a, some O, right? If you're a jillionaire, if you're an intellectual and you've got 20 different letters behind your name, if you're at the top of the ladder, if you want to be in a church where there's unity, you've got to rank yourself down. You've got to take this lowly position. You've got to get in this crouching position. This is what Jesus would do. And if you don't do it, if all you do is wait on others to serve you, you're going to have a problem. You're not going to be acting like Jesus. Jesus said he didn't come to be a server, I mean a servant, to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He came to take that position. He came to demonstrate humility, and then not only he adds gentleness to it, again, taking his orders from Jesus' life. And when we think about gentleness, don't think that you're being weak, don't think that you're a dishrag. A person who's gentle is a person who has their power under control. The power is under control. Let's think about a horse. Have you ever seen um, the man? I didn't, I didn't write this in my notes, but, you know, it comes to my mind. Have you ever seen the show Man from Snowy River? The Man from Snowy River. What does he do? He tames the Brumbies. What are the Brumbies? The Brumbies are the wild horses out there in Australia, and they are powerful looking. They are, they are some most magnificent horses but they're totally out of control. They run and they follow that big black horse and he's wild and crazy, but he's the leader of the pack. But if they can get one of those horses that's so fast and so strong and they can break that horse and they can ride that horse, that horse will take them from A to B with no problem. And if Jesus, if you want to have unity in the church, you and I, we have to have Jesus riding in the saddle of our lives, taking the reins of our lives, and moving us from point A to point B under control. Power to speak when I should speak. Power to not, not to speak when I should not speak. Power to forgive. Power to be defending the innocent. Power to defend the truth. Power not to retaliate. Power 
under control. Then he gives us three in a row there. Look at this. With patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. There's three there, all smashed together. What is patience? <laughs> one commentator put it like this. I, I love this. The ability to deal with an aggravating person versus snapping at the aggravating person. I thought, that's pretty good. <laughs> the ability to deal with an aggravating person versus snapping at the aggravating person. And he gave one illustration that I don't think I would normally give. Back in those days, if you had it, two people were married, and one became a Christian, and one was not. So the, non, the, non, the believer would have to bear with that unbeliever. They were to live with that unbeliever as long as they consented to live with them. And they would have to bear underneath them as they would learn to read the Bible, as they would go to church, as they would worship. And we all know people who are in these situations. Now, I'm not talking about suffering long underneath a physically abusive relationship. Okay, let's make sure we don't. I'm not agreeing with that at all. But we do all know people who are married to unbelieving spouses and we are to help them, and they are to seek to bring Christ to them as they may. But does this mean we cannot correct an aggravating person? I mean, okay, they're aggravating me. Does this mean I can't go and tell them that they're aggravating me? <laughs> we can. We ought to. It's not right for us not to go and tell somebody that they're doing bad or sinful behavior. But when we do it, how do we do it? We have to be so patient. We have to remember how patient Christ has been with us. And so we do this with great patience. And you and I, as we do these things, we're to do them in love. It's not bearing or tolerating somebody without open resentment. It's not boiling over on the inside and holding myself together on the outside. Now, we've all done that. We've all done that. But what he wants us to do and I'm going to use the words of Calvin. He wants us to use prayer. And he wants us to experience prayer. And he wants us to be in prayer to the point where we can give over the boiling over to Jesus. And we can love the person in the place of the boiling. That's what he wants. That's what he's saying to us. He wants us to get to the point where we can love that person. And see what we need to do to help that person. It doesn't mean we can't correct them. Because we just might have to do it. These are the qualities. Listen to them. They're all lumped together. We got humility. We got gentleness. We got patience. We got toleration. We got love. Now we come to diligence and peace. Look there at verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now this, this phrase, the unity of the Spirit, it can be translated the unity produced by the Spirit. Now, when you read that, you think the unity produced by the Spirit, you might want to say to yourself, well, why do I need to work at all if the Spirit's going to do it? Right? The Spirit's going to do it. Why do I need to exert so much effort? Well, let me tell you why. And it goes back to what Mr. Moore read a few minutes ago. Because the Spirit of God uses means. Jesus says, hey, I'm the head of the church. Okay, now, y'all with me? I'm the head of the church. I will build my church. Now, when this service is over, you with me? I don't think Jesus is going to show up and start helping us take this place apart. You with me? Is he? <laughs> He's not. But I thought he builds the church. 
I thought he went, might, if he's going to do it, I mean, might, maybe he should help us take this place apart, right? He says, I will build the church. Well, how does he build the church? Well, he's going to build the church with Peter and the apostles. Peter, and what Peter said in the, for all the apostles, he says, thou, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's, and he said, I'm going to build my church on Peter and, the, and that confession, right? He builds his church on that confession and those men who write Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and who write all those other parts of the Bible. And he builds his church on his word, and he builds his church using ordinary preachers. And he produces this unity. And if you want to say, hey, Pastor Weed, how do I know that the Spirit of God's at work producing unity in the church? Well, let me ask you, are you humble? <laughs> are you gentle? Are you tolerating? Are you kind? Are you willing to step up to the plate and say, hey, look, um, that's aggravating and that's probably wrong and you stop saying that. See, that's how we know the Spirit's working in us. And there's this diligence, diligence in peacemaking. It's, uh, this word diligence speaks of sparing no effort. There's a sense of urgency, sparing no effort to be at peace with others. This is sometimes the things we have to, you know, we have to work on sometimes. We have to think to ourselves, maybe before we go and talk to our wives and try to make things right, maybe we need to let 30 minutes go by. Because I see something like this and I go, charging in, maybe too fast. But it's something we need to do. There's no room for being rivals. There's no room for, for being at odds with each other, but, but we are to be at peace. Now, one of the things that I did, and I remember when I went to, I was 31 years old, and I went to South Carolina. And I had no idea what it meant to be a, a minister to the youth people, to the youth so I had 25 kids in front of me, and I don't know what I'm going to do, but I had prepared a Bible study, and I thought, you know, I've got to start teaching these guys Scripture. And the first Scripture that came to my mind, I had a little packet of cards. I had my navigator cards. And the first one was Hebrews 12, 14. And you know what people do with Hebrews 12, 14? Y'all stick with me now. If you go and you look and you study about the doctrine of sanctification, they use Hebrews 12, 14, and they say, without holiness, King James Version, no man will see the Lord. That is in every uh, doctrine of sanctification. It's usually the first verse. Without holiness, no holiness, no heaven. That's not a great, that'd be a great sermon, Brian, right? Preach that. No holiness, no heaven. And so they think about that. And with these kids, I'd get them up and I'd say, okay, Mr. Larson, I, don't, I didn't know Mr. Larson. I'd say, Mr. Larson, please stand up. Mr. Larson, stand up. Who, who are you? And you'd say, my name is Steve Larson. I'd say, Mr. Larson, we're going to study Hebrews 12, 14. Say Hebrews 12, 14. And he'd say Hebrews 12, 14. Thank you, Mr. Larson. Sit down. I'm learning their names. And then I had the next person stand up. Mrs. Betty Jean Larson, would you stand up? So she stands up. What is your name? Tell everybody your name. She tells them their name. And I say, what are we going to study? Hebrews 12, 14. Hebrews 12, 14. You know what it says? You know what the first line of Hebrews 12, 14 is? It's not without holiness no man will see the Lord. It's pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification or the holiness without which no man will see the Lord. It's pursue peace first with all men. Oh man, I forgot that. We left that part out. You know why I think we sometimes might want to leave that out? Because I think we think that sitting at Jesus' feet, I think we think that being in a closet... I think sometimes we think that if we read our Bibles, that we're getting all the sanctification we need. And Jesus is saying, and the apostle is saying here, that you and I need to pursue peace with all men. You want maximum sanctification? You get with some people. Did you hear that? 
Not on Zoom. Get with some people. Why? Messy. <laughs> people are messy. All of a sudden, I got to deal with myself. All of a sudden, I got to deal with you. You got to say you're sorry. I got to say I'm sorry 10 times more than you. <laughs> right? Maximum sanctification. When you're with people. Ma you know who's being sanctified the most right now? Probably Jessica. Got those three babies. <laughs> right? Man, listen, you know, this is it. Preacher, he has to say some hard stuff sometimes. You've got to be honest. When you're with people, you've got to be honest. You've got to tell people they're in sin. And when people hear they're in sin when they first walk in, man, they may just walk right out the building. You've got to tell, tell people the truth. So here we are. We've got to do these uncomfortable things. We've got to risk pain to make peace. How many times have I gone to somebody, folks, listen, gone to somebody knowing I was in the right and coming away saying, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? How many times have I gone to people and I've confronted them about their sin, I would rather get a Slurpee. I would rather go to a theme park, but I go and I say, this is wrong, and they say, thanks, pastor, never see him again. Then there's other folks, you go and you talk to them and you say, you've got to stop this brother, you've got to stop this sister, and then they say they love you to the day they die because they say, you know what, if you hadn't told me to stop doing this, I would still be doing it right now. But it's, man, it's risky stuff to get this peace going. And I would rather drink a Slurpee. I would, wouldn't you? Let's go get a frap, man. <laughs> well, finally, we want to see the confession of our unity, and that's in verses 4 through 6. So where does this come from? The Spirit's working this stuff in our hearts, working this unity in our hearts, and then the Apostle Paul, he moves us in verses 4, 5, and 6. He moves us from the Spirit to the Lord and to God the Father. Did you see that? One Spirit there, verse 4. One Lord, verse 5. One God and Father of all. This is our confession. This is where this unity comes from. One Spirit. This Spirit of God saving our souls. Not to be just individual units out there all by ourselves fishing on Sunday apart from the body of Christ, but part of the body. We're brought into this body by the Spirit of God. And we have this hope. Remember what? A few weeks ago we studied hope. And we said our hope is certain hope. We know that we're going to go to heaven. We know that we have somebody going to save us from the wrath to come. And so then we move to one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This Spirit brings us to Jesus. We embrace Jesus Christ. This is our confession. We, Psalm chapter 2 says, we kiss the Son's feet. I like that. One Lord, one faith. We, we're going to study about faith tonight, justification by faith at that sermon. We have a truth, we have a body of truth, and we have a person that that body of truth points us to, and we need the truth in our hearts, and we need the person, we need to rest on Jesus Christ as that person who saves us from our sin. One baptism, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What's baptism about? Remember we said baptism is not so much about water as it is about being in union with Jesus Christ. This is what we confess. We have one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. God the Father, He's not just the Creator here. He's talking about 
the God the Father who is the Redeemer of us all through Jesus Christ. You go back to chapter 1. The Father planned it all to the praise of His glory. (laughs) The Son accomplished your forgiveness on the cross to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit takes what the Son did and what the Father planned and He applied it all to the praise of God's glory. And this is our confession. This is God who is over us through Jesus Christ, Lord of all. As the Spirit of God is working in us all, this is our confession. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the unity that we have. It comes from God alone. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit, Lord, drives us to Jesus Christ. And we hold on to him with all of our hearts. And with him in our arms, we come to you and praise you. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach us to hold on to this truth. Teach us to confess these truths. Lord, we pray that as your Spirit works in us, we might be humble and gentle. Lord, that we might be patient, tolerating, helping, and loving. We might be those who are diligent in pursuing peace with everyone in this congregation. We'll give you all the praise and all the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.